Being an expert sucks. As a teacher of spiritual intelligence and emotional health, I get cornered into being the guy who has all the answers. I'd like to take this opportunity to make a confession. I don't. What I do have are convictions. I have theories. I have questions. I find myself looking around and I'm like, we can't stay here. Stop setting up your tent. We can't stay here. Through my journey, it's become evident that being a participant is no longer enough. It's time to become reformers. These are my confessions. To get deeper in this conversation, visit MikeMayashiro.com. All right, you guys, welcome. Thank you for being here. I am so excited for this first session we're going to have together. Um, <laughs> I'm going to do a thank you, Stacey. I'm going to do a brief. I'm going to try to keep it brief. A run through of. Uh, I don't want to say this because it's going to sound boring, and I promise you it's not going to be boring. But we're going to do a little bit of like backstory and history on where the gospel is coming from. Why is this thing? Why does this matter to us? Uh, I know some of you guys have been who are watching right now. You've been with us for a bit. Some of you maybe have never seen my face before in your life. Some of you have maybe never stepped foot in a church before, like a church building or a service, and some of you have been in the church your whole lives. Either way, I just wanted to lay a foundation for us to have a, a common ground that we're going to go from, and then we're going to get into this thing, all right? Um, so let me see if this works. Oh, it works. All right. So session one, the gospel. Uh, we're just going to run right into this, you guys. Some of these pictures, you can tell that I made them. And other ones I did not make. And I, I, I bet you'll be able to tell the difference. So no judgment, only celebration here. Here we go. So the whole thing started in a garden, right? This is where the story begins. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? And then there was a garden. He put humans there. Adam and Eve made in his image. And we're going to blast through this, okay? There's so much detail in every slide that I could share with you. But for the sake of time, we're just going to go through it. God hung out with Adam and Eve in the garden, right? And at the cool of the evening, he would come and walk with them, and they would just enjoy a, a communion, a, an intimacy, if you will, right? And in that garden, God put two trees, the tree of life, which is pictured on the left, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil there on the right, clearly. Look how knowledgeable that tree looks. And so God told Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth. Basically, this was their playground. Have a great time, right? And there's just one little like restriction God wanted to put in here. And he said, do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Cause the day you eat of it, you're going to die. Right. That was it. And sure enough, however long it's been, Adam and Eve ate from the tree, right? They did it. They did the thing. And now separation, all of a sudden their lives changed things about their physical experience, the world around them, their relationship with God changed. And now there was a separation. Sin had entered the story. Now there was a problem, and now there was a distance between them and God. Super sad, super unnatural, super not fun, okay? Genesis 6, 5, the Lord, got, the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race. Okay, so hang on. Fast forward from here, Adam and Eve populate the earth, right? Like they were supposed to, and human beings continue to grow in number. And then it gets to the point, four chapters later, the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. <laughs> That's not funny, but I, this verse to me, for however long it's been, has always been funny to me because the extrem extremity of the language, every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. 
I mean, it's hard to like wonder any kind of like exception to this. Everyone constantly was only experiencing wickedness in their hearts, which this is really sad. It goes on to say that God regretted making us, that this whole thing was a mistake, that he did not imagine that this was going to happen, that people were going to come up with the things that they were doing. And he was like, I got to, I got to wipe this thing off. I got, we got to start over or stop or whatever. So he decides he's going to flood the world. Right. But in the story, God finds a guy named Noah. He's like, Hey, you righteous among all the people. I'm going to spare humanity through you. Take your family, build a boat, hear the instructions explicitly that will defy water and rain's going to come. And Noah's like, what's rain, right? They'd never had this before. And two by two, all the creatures of the world come to Noah. They get on this boat and they survive the flood. And God promises he'll never destroy the, the world with water again, right? Um, and then from Noah come his descendants, right? And they spread out and populate the earth from his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And they continue to grow in number as well, again. And then from this people, God chooses a man named Abram. So in Genesis 12, we see God says to Abram, I will make you into a great nation. And I paraphrase some of these verses, okay? And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And so Abram becomes Abraham. God decides he's going to choose this man. And through his line, he's going to bless the entire world. We don't really know what this means at this point in the story, but we know it's going to be global impact. Everyone on the planet is going to be impacted by how God's going to bless them through Abraham's life, right? And then Abram has a son. His name is Jacob, has a couple sons, but Jacob is the one that matters. <laughs> so Jacob's wrestling with an angel or God, right? The angel of the Lord in the desert. And um, he will not let go. And so God, unless he blesses him, right? So God says, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you've struggled with God and the humans and with humans and have overcome. And so is Jacob's name changes to Israel. And now Israel becomes the people that God is choosing to bless the world through, right? Delineating from Abraham. And then fast forward, Jacob has a bunch of sons, but the, the son that matters is Joseph. Not the other sons don't matter, but this guy is pretty popular in the story, right? Joseph gets sold into slavery because of jealousy and works his way up to the point where he is now, like he wins the Pharaoh's favor, like admiration, respect, trust. Genesis 41, then Pharaoh said to Joseph, you shall be in charge of my palace and, and all my people are to submit to your orders. Only the respect, only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you, which that's, that's like some crazy empowerment, right? Like the Pharaoh is basically making him a second Pharaoh. And so here this Israelite becomes in charge of the greatest superpower on the planet at this point. And so Joseph brings the Israelites, all of the tribes of Israel into Egypt to spare them from the famine and everything else that's going on in the world, right? So the Israelites have moved into Egypt and then they're, they began to grow in number to the point where they were starting to outpopulate the Egyptians in the country. And then the day came where, and I think this verse is kind of funny too, then a new king to whom Joseph meant nothing came to power in Egypt. You guys, I'm using the NIV for a lot of this translation. A new king to whom Joseph meant nothing came to power in Egypt. So this guy rises to power whom Joseph is forgotten by. He doesn't know who this guy was, what he did, what kind of honor is deserved by this man. And so in this place, he's advised like, hey, we need to do something about this Hebrew infestation. These people are growing in number. If they aren't kept in check, they could side with our enemies and totally overthrow us. And they're within our nation, right? So they decide to oppress the people, enslave them, give them really difficult work, put them in like hard labor, blah, blah, blah. And this happens for a long time. And so in this, the cry of the Israelites, of the Hebrew people goes up to God and God comes and finds a guy named Moses. Moses, out of the Israelites in the Egyptian part of the story, God calls him out, says, you're going to lead my people out of Egypt. And he's like, what? And he does. And we see some fantastic, incredible miracles wrought by the hand of Moses through obviously God working through him. 
the splitting of the Red Sea, the 10 plagues, the water out of rocks in the desert, the manna, like we just see a lot of crazy stuff happening in this part of the story. God is leading his people out of captivity, right? <clears throat> and so then from there, Moses then gets given what we call the law, right? We start with the 10 commandments and it starts to evolve from there. And God is giving instruction to his people on how to live, how to be set apart from all the other nations in the world, the way they're meant to conduct themselves, the kind of clothing that they wear, the way that they treat their families and the protocols they live within the land, they are set apart, right? So we are then handed the law and this thing is given to the people to protect them, to uphold them, to, to set them apart from all the other countries to show that God has chosen them, right? And so this law was supposed to be here to support and empower them and help the people. Um, and then later in Isaiah, we see some prophecy come forth. And this, you guys, this is just a tiny, 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 tiny sampling of a ton of pro prophetic words, if you will, prophecy given about a chosen one, a Messiah that was coming to the, the people of Israel to save and change the world, right? So therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel, which we know means God with us, right? And so we start to hear about a virgin giving birth to a son, and he's going to have these kinds of attributes and these kind of experiences. He's going to be from these places doing these things and this kind of an effect. Um, Isaiah 9, 6, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. So I'm just giving you a, just a couple little like teaser moments to recognize like this language. It's throughout ancient texts about the Israel people and the, the Hebrew people and where they're going. Okay, so they all are looking forward to a guy that's coming who's going to change the world. Who's going to save them, liberate them, right? So fast forward, a day comes where a child is born unto a virgin, right? The star of David, all these different signs lining up that are astronomically impossible. Like statistically, this is absurd, but it's happening. And this kid comes forth and people who are around this know there's something special about this baby. This is the Messiah, the Christ, right? The one who we've been waiting for. And so fast forward, he grows up and starts to perform miracles and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and telling people that, the, the way God is and what he's looking for us is different than what they'd been told. They'd been following the law, rules, requirements, expectations, right? Uh, and he starts telling them something else, something different, giving them a new commandment. And love starts to become a pretty strong priority. Uh, the heart intent, right? What's going on inside of us starts to become more important to the point where um, he tells these people, hey, I'm going to leave and I'm going to send the Holy Spirit, which they don't know what this means, right? Very truly, I tell you, it is for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And we see a few different exp explanations of this. The Holy Spirit is going to be released to the people. And they're like, cool. They're not entirely sure what that looks like, but they know it's probably good because Jesus is saying it, right? And so Jesus continues to perform miracles and change the hearts and minds of people. And they start to experience radical repentance, redemption in their lives, forgiveness, of sins, which up until this point, people had to constantly sacrifice animals to pardon them from their misdemeanors, right? From their sin. And so to the point where the religious leaders of the day become really upset and defensive and to the point where they're murderous and they get Jesus killed. So he gets crucified on a cross, right? This perfect, innocent, spotless lamb. Jesus lived a life completely submitted to the law, upholding the heart and spirit of it and not violating it in any way. Everyone else, every human being up to this point in human history had failed. 
had fallen short, had missed the mark, had deviated from what they were supposed to do. And Jesus nailed it. He knocked it out of the park, just absolutely fulfilled what it meant for a human being to be in right relationship with God. Now we're going to go right back to the garden. Adam and Eve, they walked away, right? Jesus steps in. He's called the second Adam. He steps in as a new archetype, if you will, and demonstrates this is what it's supposed to look like. This is how this was supposed to be. We kill him. He raises again from the dead three days later, right? And then the Holy Spirit gets released. Now we're blasting through this, right? After this, Jesus, that, uh, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, he said, it is finished. Bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. So Jesus knows that God the Father is accomplishing something in the course of human history. Jesus is not just like cleaning the living room in this moment, right? He is fulfilling the entirety of what God had promised to Abraham. I'm going to bless the entire world through you. Jesus just put the finishing touch on the whole thing. It's done. An accomplished work, okay? Now, the word finished here means absolutely completed, satisfied, right? It's done. And so that word is important. It's something we're going to look at today because a lot of us have been raised in the Christian church. We've been taught in Sunday school and Sunday morning or whatever, what the gospel is and what God expects from us and how we're supposed to live now because of it. And a lot of the, the attitude, the spirit behind why we go after what we do in the church has come from a desire to try and continue to finish a work. And I'm going to point that out. I'm not interested in being critical or condemning anyone, but I do want to poke at a spirit in the world that has entered the church that has deceived the hearts and minds of people and stolen that from them the freedom that legitimately was purchased for them by the blood of Jesus on that cross. The work is done. And so we're going to talk about that in a little bit. Um, but we're going to look at some scripture here, okay? But before we do, uh, no, let's look at it now. Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. Okay? So our job is not to also be crucified on a cross. Our job is not to serve the poor or to heal the sick or raise the dead. Those things will happen. Our role though, in this relationship, in what the Lord is accomplishing, is to believe in Jesus, to believe in what he did. Like that from that place of absolute surrender and dependence on his sacrifice on our behalf, his response to the Father being ours, absolutely just relying on him, everything else is gonna find its context, but our job is to believe in him, okay? Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So Jesus is the only way for us to be in right relationship with, with God. Now, let me make a distinction here. Not praying a prayer, Jesus come into my heart, but believing in Jesus. These are different things. A lot of us have been taught in, in church or in Christianity that when you pray, you simply say these words out loud, you say the right stuff, it's a, it's a prayer, almost like a spell. It's like an incantation, right? And that's not how this works. Jesus is the only way we can be right with, with the Father, and it's not through a prayer. The prayer will happen somewhere in this, right? I'm just saying the prayer is not enough. It is through an absolute recognition that he's the only way my life is going to be what it's supposed to be. I actually legitimately can't get myself there, not even with a prayer. Because I'm trying to, like, identify a problem in what we've done with Christianity. We do this altar call thing and just tell people, if you pray this prayer, come over here. If you have this emotional experience and pray this thing, you're good to go. We're going to stamp you with your insurance and you are free. You're safe. You're not going to burn in hell or whatever. And that's not the deal. 
it's an actual recognition and the source of where we come from that Jesus is the only way my life is going to be what it's supposed to be. That he is the Lord and the Savior of my absolute depravity, right? And we were recognizing that this is the only way this is going to happen. And from that place of recognizing that he did what we needed and he is the only way it can happen, something happens inside of us and a response demonstrates itself, okay? Um, this is Jesus talking to John. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, this is important, you guys, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Something is going to happen to the person that believes in Jesus, not the person who prays the right prayer, who recites the right spell, out of the person who believes in him, which is a heart thing, right? It's coming from somewhere inside. A river of living water is going to flow. Is he talking about actual H2O? No, he's talking about the water, typically in scripture, the language is it represents the Holy Spirit, right? So the Holy Spirit is going to flow out of him, and it, he's going to come in the nature of life, of abundance, of prosperity, of fulfillment, of provision, protection, security. This river is going to flow out, okay? And it's going to have an effect, and we're going to look at that throughout this weekend. Ephesians 2, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. This faith thing is not something you're doing. It's a gift from God. It's not by your works or your, your prayer. So no one can boast, like, I did this. Oh, that happened here. I made this thing take place. I responded like that. You, we don't get to get, take credit for that, you guys. The response that the Father's looking for from us is going to come from an overflow of his wooing in us and our absolute surrender, okay? So the faith that erupts the dunamis power of God in us for us to be transformed, to be born again, is a gift from God. It is not something people can muster up. And I'm not trying to disempower you. I'm actually trying to do the other thing, right? I know this can feel kind of scary for those of us who don't want to do the trust thing. Those of us who want to secure our safety and our future, this can feel threatening. But here's the deal. The thing that's threatened in you is the thing that needs to die. That's what the surrender thing is going to look like, okay? So we're going to get into it, all right? Galatians 2.20, this is Paul. Again, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So Paul is saying, I'm not the one running the show anymore. Which can be kind of weird for us to try and consider because most of our lives, we're the ones running the show, right? We're the ones calling the shots. We're the ones like making the decisions or whatever. And Paul is saying, hey, something happened to me and I'm not the one making this happen anymore. It's now Jesus in me that is demonstrating this passion, these supernatural abilities, this conviction, this resolve, this boldness, this faith. It's coming from someone else. I didn't do this. And now I'm sharing this experience with someone who is literally walking around with me as me. Ugh. Okay. Oh, whoa. What's well, something crazy is happening? I don't know. How. <sighs> okay. For I've been crucified. Nope. For in Christ Jesus, neither circum. Okay. You guys, this is an important piece. Circumcision was a specific way that the Israelites, remember back in the day, were set apart from everyone else in the world. Because their peepees were cut a certain way, all of the nations knew they were not like other nations, right? Who would choose to do this to themselves? But it was a mark saying that they were set apart. They were different. <laughs> they were special. I don't know why that, but that was the deal, okay? And so here comes Paul after the cross, after Jesus being crucified, ra risen again. Paul's telling people, these, the chosen people, hey, 
that thing that set you apart, that marked you, that demonstrated your absolute devotion and surrender and security in God, it doesn't matter anymore. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. So whether your peepee's cut or not, it doesn't matter. The only thing that counts, I'm sorry, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. What is Paul saying? You guys, the rule following is null and void. It doesn't have any value anymore. It's done away with. We, I didn't have time to, put it, like, to go into all this scripture today, but the law was called a, a basically a, a babysitter, a glorified babysitter. This thing was a guardian, a protector, right? A surrogate parent here to just make sure we didn't destroy the world and each other, right? The first time we tried, we made a mess of things, right? So the law got implemented to protect the planet from our depravity, from our absurdity and selfishness and violence and whatever. So the law was here to basically just make sure we didn't burn the house down, right? <laughs> to like put a little uh, a stint in the experience of, of our lives to make sure that we have some semblance of value and respect in keeping the relationship intact, right? But this was not ideal. This is not how we're meant to live. This is not what God had in mind when he put the garden together. He wasn't like, I'm gonna put a garden together. Let's put all these rules around so everyone has to follow them and I'm gonna make sure they follow the rules and if they break the rules, I'm gonna destroy them. That wasn't the goal. That's what he, not what he wanted. This guy's love. He's after relationship, right? Intimacy, connection, communion, right? And so the law was there to just basically like hold the fort until something else could happen. So in the course of human history, we see God walking with us and then we walk away and it wasn't close enough. So then we see God lead us, right? With a pillar of fire, a pillar of, of cloud and with rules and the temple and blah, blah, blah. That wasn't enough. So then we see God show up as a human being. He becomes one of us. So Emmanuel, God with us. He's walking around, giving us a hug, wearing flesh, like talking like us, like he's a person. And it still wasn't the deal. That's not what he had in mind. It wasn't close enough. So he, the son knows like this isn't it. Peter wants to protect this state. Like, no, this is perfect. This is, a, this is the deal. We want you. And he's like, this is not the plan, right? It's not enough. So Jesus dies and the comforter comes, the Holy Spirit, the one who will lead us into all truth, who will counsel us, who will teach us, who will heal us, right? He shows up and here's the deal. He's not watching us. He's not hanging out. He's inside of us and he's coming forth. He's coming to the world from us in us, through us, as us. This is a very different relationship, okay? And so when we see that this whole circumcision thing is going away, the people are like, what are you talking about? Like, this is the thing that made everything matter. This is the thing that made us important, that gave us our identity, that, that ensured that we were chosen, right? And he's like, yeah, that's going away. This is not just for you anymore. It actually got opened up to everyone. There's a lot of drama surrounding this part of history, right? Everything that had been done for generations is now changing. Everyone got chosen. It's no longer just Abraham and his kids. It's Abraham represents God choosing everyone and the whole world being pulled in, being grafted, being adopted, being unified with God himself. And they would all have his spirit inside of them. So they're no longer just a carnal creature running around following their appetites and making a mess of everything. They are now governed not by external rules and requirements and punishment, the threat of punishment or death or whatever, they are now governed from the inside out of a place of internal value, of recognition, of intimacy and connection, right? God said in Jeremiah 33, I, would, I will write my law on your hearts, meaning it won't be something you externally respect or fear. It'll be something internally that you are connected to and you have value for because it's intimate 
it's written on your person, right? And it's less now about our performance. Sorry, it's absolutely not about our performance anymore. And now it's absolutely about the posture of our heart, the state of our being, okay? So that's, that was 2,000 years ago, right? 2,000 years later, I'm gonna tell you a little, little story. <laughs> oh, gosh. So um, here's how I got introduced to the Christian religion. Um, my parents were not... My, <laughs> my parents were not Christians when I was born. They got saved when I was four, okay? So they brought me to a Baptist church, and they left me with this... Okay, I'm just gonna give you a little bit of the, the, the backstory to give you some context. So they dropped me off in this room. I've never been to a church before in my life. I don't know what church is. They're trying to explain to me. I conceptually kind of uh, uh, get it on some level. They leave me in this room with this giant woman. She was the biggest woman I'd ever seen in my life at that point. I don't know why this really sticks out to me though. Like, and she was my Sunday school teacher. I'm like, school? I don't wanna go to school on Sunday. Um, so she brings me in. There are a bunch of other children too who are just as scared as me. Like none of us wanna be there. <laughs> like, there's a giant woman. We don't know each other. It's kind of like the Hunger Games, right? It's kind of how it felt. And so I go in there. I'm like, okay. And I just look back. I'm like, man, I was a brave soul. I'm like writing this out by myself, right? And so this woman proceeds to tell us, I'd never heard of my life. I learned for the first time what hell is, who Jesus is, what sin is, what eternity is, what heaven is, right? Um, the cross, his blood, he had to die. This is like a, kind of a traumatizing experience. I'm like, I don't know why my parents locked me in this room with these people. This is, this is awful, right? And so I then get told that I am a sinner. Like I'm nasty, I'm dirty, I'm ugly, I'm disgusting, I'm unworthy of God, he hates me, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, oh, wow, this is just not a good day. This is awful, right? And so they go on to explain that all of us are this and none of us are good enough. And anything we ever do that's good or look, that looks good is like filthy rags to God and all this stuff, right? I'm like, oh, wow, this is awful. Oh, and by the way, because of your obvious depravity and like fight against God, when you die, you're gonna go to hell. And hell is a place in eternity that's really hot. It's fiery, right? Eternity means your body's gonna go there and it's not gonna burn up. It's gonna, it's gonna burn and burn and burn forever. You'll have the sensation, the experience. You guys, I literally remember her explaining this to me. You will have the experience of being burned alive, but your body won't die. And you'll just burn and burn for eternity, which is forever, as in there's not an end to that. And as a kid, you're like, forever. And you try to conceive of like how long it goes and you, you kind of get to the point where you're like, no, it's past that. And your mind just gives up. You're like, yeah, I don't get it. Forever. So I'm like, I want to burn forever. This is awful. And then she tells us the only way to not burn forever is to ask Jesus, the guy who died on that cross, to come into your heart. And I'm like, what? To be your Lord and Savior, to forgive you for your sins, right? And here's the deal. She's so she's not wrong about all this, right? Like this is in the book. Um, but I remember from that experience, she, at the end, she was like, now how many of you boys and girls, how many of you want to receive Jesus into your heart? And I'm like, uh, I'll take Jesus. I don't, I'd rather that than the fire one. I'll take the Jesus one, please, right? Um, fast forward the next day, I am going to school. I had been enrolled into a private Baptist school. So I'm wearing a brown uniform. I've never done this in my life. I'm in the backseat of my parents' car. My dad's driving, my older sister's in the front seat. And I remember thinking about that woman yesterday and everything she said, and I was like, okay, but I actually do want Jesus in my heart. And I prayed in the backseat by myself for Jesus to come into my, in my heart, to forgive me for my sins. I was so sorry. And to save me, right? 
And so my Christian career began. And we started, I started going to school and learning, like from the private school, like about the Bible and about Jesus and learning all these Bible stories. And we had to memorize passages of scripture for a grade. You know what I mean? Like I'd get punished if I didn't know what every word said and whatever. And so to this day, I'm grateful for the education and the pounding of that book into my mind. It's been very helpful. Um, but I also learned pretty intensely to be afraid of authority figures, to be afraid of God, to perform for my acceptance, to cater to what people thought of me, right? I learned in a pretty intense way to very much value what the Christians around me thought. Like their opinion of me was a big deal, right? And no one meant to tell me that, but that's the lesson that I learned. Um, and so fast forward, I'm going through my Christian life and uh, I'm 18. And I get to this point where I realize like the Christian thing is kind of boring. Like I'm just getting nice and honest with myself and like thinking about evangelizing and telling other people about Jesus. I'm like, what do we have to offer the world that's better than what they have? Like, I mean, legitimately in our experience, I get the, the, the mental peace of mind that I'm not gonna burn in hell forever. Like that's great, but what about now? Like, I'm going to tell them to stop taking drugs, to stop sleeping with their girlfriend, to stop partying or whatever, and come to church with me and clap their hands on Sunday morning? Like, what am I offering these people? This feels uninspiring. I don't know that this is great, right? And I didn't mean to think this way, and I didn't tell anybody that I thought this. But I was, like, wrestling with it, right? And I'm also, like, looking at the book, and I'm, like, trying to figure out what does it take for me to be the Christian I'm supposed to be? How do I win at the game of Christianity, right? What's the deal? And thankfully, somewhere in the gospel, I found Jesus told the teachers of the law, hey, the commandment to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. All of the law and the prophets hang on these two things. And I was like, oh, that's it. This is the answer. This is the key. This is how you win. This is how you be the best Christian. You love God with everything you are and love people. Okay, so I have to love people. How do I do that, right? Because I knew that I could do loving acts or I could pretend, and I, I did, but I could tell something was missing, like doing the things wasn't enough, like something was wrong here, I didn't care. It didn't affect me, I didn't, when I read about love in the book, in the Bible, I'm like that's not what's happening inside of me. I know that's what people think is happening on the outside of me and everyone thinks I'm humble and kind and gracious and, and loving, but in my heart, like I actually don't know that I care. I don't know if I care about this person. I want to, like I want to care. I just, honestly, I'm not sure that's what's there. So I started to have to question like, what is love? Like, what is this thing we're talking about? It can't be what we're all just describing as like how we behave. It's cause it's, something's missing here, right? I don't know how I knew this. I just understood deeply something is, com is incomplete. And so I started asking people like what they thought love was, you know, and just started really getting into the behind the scenes of this. Where is this thing coming from? What is it made out of? What does it do, right? I didn't have a lot of great answers. And then one day, I'm going to a college group. So uh, there was a preacher at this group who was, he was like in his late 20s and he was preaching and there's something about this man that was different than any other preacher I had encountered up to this point in my Christian walk. When this guy spoke, I don't know, you just, you needed to hear it. You needed to know what he was gonna say and you knew that what he was saying was important, that it was alive, that it was doing something to you there was an experience you were having, right? And I couldn't explain back then what was happening. I just knew something mattered, right? And a bunch of us would sacrifice our Friday nights and go to church, <laughs> basically, right? And so we would like worship together and then he would get up and speak and just teach from the Bible. And after listening to him for months, in hindsight, I think this man taught me, convinced me that God loved me. I had been told that my whole life, but I never actually believed it. But sitting under this man, I don't know why, 
I don't think it's because of necessarily what he said. I think that mattered somewhere. But I think this man was chosen by God. I think he was anointed. And when he spoke, something happened to people. It wasn't just the words he used. It was where he was coming from. It was what motivated him. It was the spirit that he was of. Okay. And so after sitting under him for months, I think I accepted the idea that God loved me for the first time in my life. And I didn't know what that meant. And I wasn't conscious of it. Because one day is a Friday night, just like any other Friday night, came to, you know, college student church and the lights turned off. The worship band is on stage and they're leading us into the presence of God, right? Um, and we all start singing like we normally do. This is normal. And I don't know why today was different. I didn't feel different. I wasn't doing anything different, but all of a sudden in the middle of me singing with everyone else. And you guys, there were like almost 2000 people in this room. Like it was huge. There was a lot of people for our area. Um, so I'm lost in a sea of people just crying out to God and expressing our love and like admiration for him. Right. And in the midst of that, I don't know why today, but something changed. This dynamic was different this time. And I'm going to use language that I don't necessarily agree with to this day, but I'm just going to say it for the sake of conveying an idea. All of a sudden I became aware that God had come into the room. Oh shoot. And it wasn't like this idea of God, right? It wasn't like a theology playing itself out in this moment, like that had happened so many times before, you know, like, you know, we're singing and we have these ideas, but we've learned about God that we're starting to like kind of put in place or whatever. In this moment, it was different. This person walked in and I wasn't prepared for that. I don't, I wasn't told that God did this, you know, and um, I wasn't prepared to experience him like that. Uh, because when he walked in, he didn't just like show up. His presence brings a nature and an attribute or attributes, plural. Like there was so much about him that I didn't understand until this moment. It was an overload, right? So when he walked in, I remember being kind of shocked at the intensity of this person. Like him just being there was intense. The magnitude of his person, like how I think big is an appropriate word, how big and vast he was, but also the and the power was there too, but that wasn't what was important to me or that stuck out. The thing I was surprised by was his significance, his worthiness. Like he was the most important person in existence. And we all get that in our minds, but I hadn't known it like I had known it now in this moment. Like he mattered the most. He was the most special, I guess, you know, like he was the highest one. He was the most important he was the king of everything. And it wasn't by position or demand. It was just his quality. His nature was like everything around him is less than that, is different than that. This is perfection, I guess. And when we say perfection, when my mind hears it, I'm like, yeah, that's whatever. But when your heart touches perfection, it's a different experience entirely, right? And so he is above everything. He is worthy. Every like ounce of praise or admiration or respect that we can come up with, it all belongs to this person. All of it. If we've ever praised another person <laughs> and thought that it was like sourced in them, we were wrong. Anything praiseworthy about anyone else or about anything else actually came from him. Everything. And I'm like, oh, dang, this person is different than I knew. And then it got worse because... It's not like he got closer to me. It wasn't about that, but um, his intention toward me, which in the spirit, you can, you can, you're aware of this. You know, right? His intention toward me was kind. 
like he was worthy of all the admiration and worship and and adoration right and in all of that importance he came to me and was caring for me he wanted to support me and protect me and empower me and complete me and help me and i was not expecting that you don't expect someone like this to treat someone like me like that right like and not because i was a terrible person but all of a sudden i was <laughs> all of a sudden i sucked all of a sudden i was nasty and anything i could do was like filthy rags compared to this person just because of what we were you know there was such a difference and I was shocked and it was so inappropriate for him to come to me like that to want to serve me to want to care for me to regard me and he was in love with me and I couldn't handle it like I didn't have any grid for this I didn't have anywhere to place it it didn't make any sense and so I'm kind of overloading right and I remember distinctly being shocked by in his magnitude his intensity, his immensity, in every little piece of anything of him you could look at, all of it was clean, it was pure. And these words don't cut it. So I remember like using the word innocent, like this person is innocent. There was never something in him that was contrary to goodness or to love or to upholding the, the dignity and the value of someone else. He was so other giving like of himself, like toward other people. It was who he was. He wasn't doing this, it's who he was. And I was shocked by that. And I was like, oh God, I've been in church for 14 years, 15 years. No one told me he was like this. I was not prepared for this person. I didn't know he was like this. And so I remember snotting and sobbing for a good 40 minutes. I just, my face was being purged of any like fluid it, it had that it could produce, it was just coming out of me. And I had like a pool of my own body fluids in my hands and then the lights turned on and people were like this song was over songs were over people were going back to their seats and i was like <gasps> and like i know my eyes are bloodshot and i look wet and crazy and i i so don't want anyone to see me right now because i don't want any attention not because i looked embarrassed but because i felt so exposed like so raw and like i couldn't make myself feel that way you know what i mean like i think i wanted to be vulnerable at times in my life, but him being there removed any kind of obstacle that I had had to protect me from his nature. All of a sudden I was not protected anymore and I was exposed. And so now all of a sudden all these humans are running around. I'm like, <gasps> and I'm holding a pool. I'm, you guys, I'm not joking. I was holding a pool of snot, like both hands. And so I like sat down <laughs> trying to just blend in. Everything's fine. No one look at me. Um, and I'm literally scouring my mind, where's the tissue? Do I have any tissue anywhere? And I'm looking anywhere, does anyone have any? Don't look at me, don't look at anyone, don't talk to them, nothing. I can't, and I look at my, I have a canvas bag, like a satchel, right? I look in them, I've, I've got a Bible in there, there's a journal, <laughs> there's a pen, I think there's gum. Yep, no tissue. So I'm like, oh, I'm kind of stuck. What am I gonna do? And so I decide, you know what? I'm not getting out of this. I consolidate the, the goop to one hand, and in one fell swoop, just, smeared it on my bag right just <laughs> I'm like that's my bag um and every once in a while that night while the guy was preaching the light would glint off my bag and I would be reminded that there's just a bunch of my snot right there I'm like oh yeah that's crazy um and I remember like being shocked as I looked around at everyone else like God had done something to us I didn't understand it but whatever separated us before was gone 
And whatever was wrong with us before was gone. And I was intrigued by this and um, like mesmerized. And it lasted for a couple of days. Like I was in this altered state and the world was beautiful and people were beautiful and everything was right. And then it would fade and I went back to being a normal human or whatever, right? And then the next Friday, we're in worship and the same thing happened. He came and I sobbed and there he was again, huge, intense, so important, perfect, kind, innocent. I remember being like blown away at his humility, like his lowliness of heart. Again, imagine being the most important person. Imagine the most important person you can think of in our in our world today. Like we think the president is super important, right? He carries a lot of, I mean, regards your political opinion, whoever, not just Trump, Obama, Bush, whomever, the president carries weight, right? Like significance in the office that they, they, they hold. I think Beyonce carries weight, right? Significance, like she's important. Um, I mean, whomever, like we have these people in our minds, like that person, if I met that person, oh my gosh, right? Like this person's more important than other people and they deserve things other people wouldn't and I'm gonna do things for this person that I wouldn't for others, right? We have that idea. Imagine that on steroids times a million and then times that by a million and then that's this person and we're just scratching the surface of his worth right that's him and then him being there in that state with that value and worth coming to you being in love with you getting on his knees before you lowering himself before you making you more important it doesn't make any sense. It's so inappropriate. It is so offensive. This is not the gospel that I was taught. This is not what I was told about this person. I was told how to perform for him, how to prove to him that I wanted him enough. I had to convince him that I was serious or that I was obedient or whatever. That's the Christianity I was raised in. I'm not blaming any one person. I don't think anybody meant to do that. I think that people did the best they knew how. But I was raised thinking and relating to this person that I had to convince him of something. That I had to change his mind or prove something to him or whatever. And in this moment, it's absolutely not the deal. And so I'm gonna say to everyone here, God is not looking for you to convince him of anything. He's not looking for you to prove anything to him. He's already convinced. That's the like, mystery and offensiveness of the gospel is he died for you before you knew there was a problem. And I don't mean those of you who prayed the prayer, who cast the spell over your own life, who recited the incantation. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking whether you've ever heard the name of Jesus or not. And people who aren't listening right now, he did it for them too. He forgave them. He died for them. He spilled his blood for them. He made them more important than himself. I know that sounds crazy, and I don't even know that I'm theologically allowed to say that, but I'm telling you in the experience, it is what he's doing. It is so inappropriate. And in that place, we were taken care of. We were secure and whole before we took our first step on this journey. He provided the solution before you were aware there was a problem. That's the nature of this guy. He's not there like, prove to me that you care. Prove to me that you love me. Prove to me that you're serious. That's not him. That's a spirit in this world that wants to take what happened and twist your brain and make you think that you have to do something for this person. That is not the gospel. When the angels came to the shepherds in the fields the day of Jesus' birth, they said to him, hey, behold, 
we, get, we bring you glad tidings of great joy that will be for all people. Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, Christ the Lord. Glad tidings of great joy for everyone. That is not the message that we've heard in church. It's not glad tidings. It's not great joy, and it's not for everybody. What we're aware of in church, for the most part, is who doesn't get this? Who's not allowed? Who's not worthy? Who's not whatever? Who doesn't fit the box, the correct box, the correct box is? And I don't think people are trying to do it again. I don't think it's a person. There's a spirit in the world distorting this message. And here's the deal. None of us are going to get this message in information form. It's going to come through a personal experience with God himself. None of us can tell you who he is, like, which is ironic because I'm sitting here trying to tell you, right? <laughs> Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. I can't convince you of God's heart for you. I can't trick your mind or get you the right information. It's not how this works. I can bear witness to what I've experienced. I can just give my account of what this person has been like and what he did to me and what I touched, what I made contact with in that place. And then from there, read that book with him in mind, with not his, the idea of him, but with that connection. And when you read that stuff and you understand his heart for you, you can't come to the conclusion that he's looking to disqualify people, that he's looking to punish people, that he wants to, that he delights in condemning them. The book actually says that he doesn't will that anyone would be condemned, but that all would come to repentance, right? There is a response in this dynamic. I'm not saying that your response doesn't matter. I'm saying your response is a result of having made contact with his love, not you thinking through a bunch of information and coming to a decision yourself. None of us have the power to pull that off. It doesn't work that way. We've got to make contact with the spirit of God. And so by me sharing this testimony today, my story, and just kind of telling you what this book has to say, there's something in the midst of this that is spirit. It's substance, right? that's coming forward that can transcend cameras and microphones and space and time. And I'm telling you that this guy is like this. He's not stuffy. He's not judgmental. He's not picky or arrogant or haughty. He is lowly of heart. He is gentle. He's kind. He's innocent and pure and genuinely wants to serve you before you've repented before you decided this was a good idea. He doesn't need you to say anything for him to come to you that way he already has. That's the gospel. And the thing getting in the way of understanding or accepting that is beliefs that did not come from him. He loves you. He has forgiven you. And he didn't die to give you a chance to accept it. He died to set you free. And you are now empowered to know the truth that you are no longer a bonded, in bondage to the power of sin or the law. You don't have to live like that. You've been set free. The rules have changed for the world. And by hearing this, something happens in us. A, a, a stirring, if you will. Faith starts to spark and, sh and churn. And movement starts to happen. I'm describing spiritual mechanics, right? A movement starts to emanate from our being from a pretty deep place, from a place that's underneath our mind. You can experience that, right? And your mind can take notes or observe some of it, but it's happening somewhere underneath your thoughts, underneath your feelings, right? We, our feelings and our thoughts, they come to like reflect something's happening, but it's happening 
beneath all of that before any of it. Right. And then you just, we get to like respond and recognize this is going on, but realize that that's spirit deep calling onto deep. There's a response happening. God is wooing us to himself. He's done the work. The cross finished everything, right? It's finished. The recompense, the propitiation, it's done. That stuff matters. It's just been done by Jesus. And now we've all been invited into a family with a dad who loves us, who is pursuant, who is committed, who is focused and ardent on connection with us, on intimacy, on union, on playful enjoyment, on pleasure. This is the gospel. Jesus loves you. He wants to run with you and hang with you and be with you and touch you and know you and be known by you, right? It's not so you can go accomplish this stuff or make these things happen or fix these problems. All that stuff will happen as a result, as a byproduct of the friendship, of the intimacy, of the romance that is being churned between us, right? But at the end of the day, the goal here is not, hey, we got to fix the world. The goal is he's in love with us. It's a bridegroom wooing his bride. We're in a dating season, you guys. Dating is probably not the right word. We're engaged. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like we are being wooed and mesmerized and transfixed. And I don't mean this in a sexual way, but seduced. Like he is getting us drunk in love with him because that's where he is already. He's drunk in love with us. And so from that place, that is the context within which we read all these verses where the circumcision thing gets nullified, where whether you're a slave or a free person, you're black, you're white, you're gay, you're straight, you're male, you're female, all that stuff goes away. It's irrelevant to the kingdom of God. He loves you. And I know by saying that the religious spirit gets all prickly and angry and wants to fight. And I'm like, hey, God did not put pre- there's a word I want. Yeah, preconditions on the people whom get to say yes and, and fall into the blood of Jesus. Anyone who recognizes that they don't have what it takes and they need him, that they want him, that they're willing to give up what they have to know him. It's for all of us. And it's from that place that we catch this. When we see Jesus walking around as a human being, preaching the gospel, healing the sick, teaching in wherever, we see him being very friendly and chummy and hung out with sinners, like the people who are sexually immoral and the tax, the people who are corrupt and the tax collectors and whatever. Like he's hanging out with these people and like partying with them. And he was being accused of being friends of sinners, right? Like he was hanging out with like shady people, people that we would at the church condemn. Be like, oh, these people are impure. They're unholy. They're heathens. They're dangerous. They're bad company, right? He's hanging out with these people. And the people who are like, clean and upright and respectable and calling the shots and running the show. He's rebuking those people. He's using the harshest, sharpest language with those people and saying, you are screwing this up. You don't get it. You're missing something that has to register somewhere. It is offensive to us. Those of us who think that we have something to own or something to protect or uphold. That is not our job. Our job is to believe in the one the father sent. He's going to pull all this off. He's going to make this stuff right. He's going to lead us into what this is supposed to be. So let's go back to the religious conversation. 
I had to ask the question, what is love, right? And so after I started experiencing God like this, you guys, it was week after week. It happened every Friday night for a little bit there. And then it started happening outside of Friday night. I would start experiencing the presence of God. I would start being ah, painfully aware and susceptible, exposed to his nature. And I would cry. It would happen in my car at the grocery store when I'm talking to, oh God, when I talked to friends, it was like, it was always just right there. I could slip at any moment and just start weeping. It was awkward. It was embarrassing. I was a dude, you know, I'm 19. Like I don't, I never cried in my life. It wasn't a thing. I mean, I hadn't cried in a long time and all of a sudden I couldn't stop. I'm just crying all the time. Like literally if I was at the grocery store or no, if I'm like hanging out with a friend and someone said Jesus and they were talking about him, I would start crying just because, oh God, they're talking about my friend, Jesus. And I'm telling you, there was like a person, was, there's a personal connection to that, right? Or if I was at the grocery store and I saw a, a human being being kind, so like, oh, someone letting someone else go forward or like handing something to somebody they were trying to reach. I'm like, there's Jesus. And I would literally start crying. I was out of my mind. And I think that's accurate. I was out of my mind. I was so laid bare to the, the nature and the love of God that even the simplest act of kindness was demonstration of his nature in the world. And I would cry. And I wasn't looking for it. If anything, I was trying to avoid it. I didn't want to make a scene and be embarrassed in public, right? And eventually, some of my best friends who also loved Jesus, and we were doing life together, several of them at different times pulled me aside and like, <laughs> in their own way, they'd be like, dude, are you okay? Like, I know Jesus, I get it, but are you sure there's not something else going on here? Like, are you all right? Like, I think they thought I was going through some kind of traumatic whatever. And I'm like, yeah, I think the trauma I'm healing from is like having been a religious Christian my whole life and being like healed from all that trauma. You know, I didn't say that, but like, I think that's what was happening. Um, and I, I couldn't explain. I'm like, no, I'm really good. And I talking about talking about Jesus and I'd cry even more. And I'm like, oh, I'm just, I'm not helping. This is not helping them think that I'm okay. Um, anyway, so I started asking people, um, about love. And as I continued to experience God in this way, I remember it was the third or fourth time that the lights had turned off in that worship set, right? And I'm looking around and everyone around me is perfect. Nothing is missing from them. Nothing's incomplete. There's nothing about them I need to protect myself from. They don't owe me anything. All of a sudden, everyone around me is intact. Everyone around me is perfect. I don't know how else to explain it. That's like where I was outside my mind, right? I was like, oh my gosh, God just changed all of us. I remember being like shocked and like humbled and quieted, like just in awe. Like he just wiped all of us. We're all different now. And as I continued to watch and I saw how everyone conducted themselves, I was like, oh, nope, it's just me. People were just as irreverent afterward as they were before, you know? And I don't mean that in a critical way, but just they were silly and laughing and, you know, just like living life in a nonchalant way. And I was like, oh, okay. So no, it wasn't all of us. Apparently it was just me. Like I'm the only one. And I saw some people crying on the phone. Maybe them too. Maybe, I don't know. But like, oh, something's happened to me. Like it's not happening to all of us. Something's happening to me. What? And as I continued to scientifically and analyze this thing and like study it, I realized like when I would experience God in that way, it changed me. Like how I was, how I operated, how I experienced the world, how I perceived things, how I related to people changed. And those of you guys who know my discerning of spirits background know this is a big deal for me. <laughs> all of a sudden, all their nasty stuff, all the things they could bring to the table, all the things I was aware of, all the things my gift pointed at were silent. It wasn't there. I'm like, what? <clears throat> anyway, so it was like the third or fourth time where I was like, I had this epiphany. I'm like, wait, is this love? I think that's what's happening to me. I think this is love. When 
when Jesus says to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, love them as you love yourself, I think that's what's happening here. Because I, I checked my motives, like, yeah, I want to give to them. I want to support them. I want to protect them. I want to help them. I want to generously offer things to them. I want to give. Like, that was a very strong, pronounced desire inside of me. And I was like, this is not normal. I think this is love. So I started asking questions from everyone, anyone who had entertained the conversation. What's love? What's love? And people, I mean, I asked a ton of people, spiritual mentors, friends, coworkers, pe literally people. I don't know why the grocery store keeps coming up. Literally people at the grocery store, I would talk to them and like if the cashier would entertain it, I'd ask them, hey, what do you think love is? And they'd be like, what? And I get now, I'm like, yeah, that's awkward. But I meant it. I'm like, seriously, what is it? And the people just tell me their response or whatever. And basically the general consensus of my my survey was people thought love was one of three things. Love is a feeling. Love is a choice. Love is what you do, right? And I was like, yeah, I feel love and I choose because of love and I do things because of love. That's, that's all. I get that. I, I don't deny any of this, but I don't think love is wrapped up in any of these things. I think love comes before this stuff. I think love is deeper than any of this. <sighs> and then in that journey, you guys, I discovered that love is not what we do. It's not how we treat people, those are symptoms of love. But love is this guy, is God himself demonstrating his own nature through us. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision are of any value. Rule following, being a good Christian, whatever, doesn't have any value. Only faith working itself out through love. This is what matters. If I speak in the tongue of men and of angels and have not love, I'm noise, right? First Corinthians 13 goes on to describe what life is like and what has value without love, and it's nothing. Love is the deal. Not how we act, not what we say, not how we treat people, not how people think of us. What we're connected to, whom we know. This is the will of God. His love coming forward from us. It makes us powerful. It makes us vulnerable. It makes us untouchable and weak at the same time. It's crazy. Okay, so here's the deal. I want to invite everyone watching here today, whether you've been a Christian your whole life or you've never heard the name of Jesus until today, it doesn't matter. Every one of you, I want to invite you to get to, in, to join me in this celebration of repentance where you get to give up the value and idea of having to do anything for God. I'd like to invite you to leave that at the altar, the altar of this screen. <laughs> you can just set it on your laptop or your, your iPad or your phone or whatever you're watching. Just take the burden of trying to convince God of something, trying to convince other Christians of something, other leaders in your life, any kind of motive that's there to appeal to a response, you get to give up. You don't need to do that. The, the Father has already responded to you. He initiated this thing. He's already fully persuaded of your value of your acceptance, of your worth. His response to that was the cross. He gave his life for that. You're accepted, you're approved of, you're intact, okay? So the thing in you that has to prove something or earn something, you get to give it up. The thing in you that thinks that you're somehow gonna pull this off, that somehow you just haven't tried enough, you haven't tried hard enough, you haven't tried enough options, that somehow you're going to fix that thing, I'd like to also invite you to give that up. There are not enough options in the world for you to get this done. It's never going to happen. And so I'm here to tell you that you are the end of yourself. There's nothing left to you than this. 
the only way your life is going to be what you underneath somehow know it can be is to give it up, is to surrender trying to make this work. Jesus didn't come to clean us up, to help us, to fix us. He killed all of us. He didn't come to like make it better. He came and reset you. That old, boring, religious, fearful, controlling, manipulative, whatever version of you is gone. That person doesn't exist anymore. They got crucified on the cross of Christ. And now what's left is this childlike, innocent, trusting person who genuinely delights in the care and covering of your dad. That's who you are. <sighs> That's what he's done, okay? So the gospel is actually a sigh of relief rather than a burden put on you to have to go do stuff or live a certain way now. The way you're supposed to live is in delight and surrender to God. And all the obedience that you're going to bring to the table is going to come as a byproduct of that surrender. That river of living water is going to demonstrate obedience in your life. It's not going to be you trying anymore. It's going to be you simply admitting the obedience coming up inside of you. It's the most natural thing in the world. It's the most natural thing in the world for you to obey and trust Jesus. And anything that shows up that tries to get you not to is not you. And so you get to disassociate from that value, from that motive, from that agenda. It is not your job to respond to God in a certain way. It's your job to give that up, to let it go and admit that he's already doing the thing. Oh. Okay. You guys, I'm going to pray. And I want to, I'm just, I'm going to pray a thing, whatever it is. I don't know yet. I'm, what I'm saying is I'm going to let, I'm going to speak on behalf of the Lord in this space here. I want you just to give permission for God to do whatever he's doing with you now. Okay. Just like let him move stuff. Let him ask things of you. Let him put things there, whatever, whatever. You, I don't know what he's going to do. That's up to him. It's between you and him. It's beautifully unique. Okay. But I'm going to pray. And I want you guys to just give yourself in your heart to whatever your dad wants. Okay. Holy Spirit, thank you that you have not left us as orphans. God, thank you that it's your good pleasure to give us the kingdom, that you died so we would have life abundant, that we would have overflowing joy and peace that surpasses understanding and provision that outlasts the demand. Yeah, God, thank you that you have done everything that we've needed you to ever do. You've already provided it. Yeah, so God, we say yes to your invitation to absolute dependence on you, to no longer calling the shots in our lives, to not making ourselves feel a certain way or securing certain results or trying to produce certain outcomes. God, we give all that up, not out of negligence, but out of trust in you, out of response that you are who you say you are and that you will take care of us. You will lead us. Yeah, God, we love you, and we trust you. And if you're watching this video, this stream today, and you've never met Jesus, and you feel something stirring inside you, and there's a response coming up that you don't maybe understand or know what to do with, I'm just going to lead you in a prayer to help facilitate that for you in case this is new. Um, so feel free to say whatever your version of this is. I'm just going to respond from that place and you can do this however you want but Jesus thank you for your sacrifice on my behalf thank you for dying for my sins for my errors for my wrong desires 
for my disobedience and rebellion. Thank you for doing what I couldn't. I accept your gracious sacrifice. I don't want to live life for me anymore. I don't want to do things my way. I don't want to be the one calling the shots. I want to know you. I want to be loved by you. I want to be led by you. I want to be taken care of by you. And Jesus, I ask that you would come into my life, that you would be the Lord and Savior in my life, that you would write my story. Yeah, and I accept the invitation to live life abundantly and follow you in all the things you have for me. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. Um, you guys, thank you for joining me today for this. Um, I'm going to bring Becca back up, our MC, and uh, I'll see you in a bit. Listen, there's more where this came from. If you want to see how deep this rabbit hole goes, check out MikeMyashiro.com.